Oh, Easter. What a fantastic day. What we know as a wonderful day wasn't exactly seen that way on its original dawning. The followers of Jesus were in hiding. Their teacher, their master, was dead. They had just watched it all happen with their own eyes. They had seen his body laid to rest in the tomb. And they were distraught. They were scared. They, they felt betrayed. This isn't how this was supposed to happen. This isn't the way that things were supposed to go down. And while the men worried and bemoaned their situation, some of the women went ahead with the preparations that needed to get done. They knew the rites that needed to be performed over the dead. They knew the logical, unhappy steps that needed to be taken. And so Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, they braced themselves for what needed to be done Sunday morning. We read the word of the Lord, Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 12. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has arisen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day. And on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to be an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That ends the reading. Let us pray. God, we, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word today, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We give this to you. We thank and praise you. We pray this in your name. Amen. It's May 1940 in, uh, in Great Britain. Nazi Germany's army has swept across Western Europe. It has conquered England's neighbors and is threatening to defeat the United Kingdom itself. The German advance has led to friction at the highest levels of government in England. Some would like to negotiate a peace with Hitler. And Winston Churchill, who refused to consider that as an option. There's friction. Those that want peace with Hitler and, and Winston Churchill, who's basically standing by himself. Things do not look good for Great Britain. There are no more allies to help, no favors to call in. Most of Europe has been overrun and the states aren't returning phone calls as they are engaged in war in the Pacific. 
There doesn't seem to be any hope. In fact, a movie depicting this period of history from Britain's perspective is titled Darkest Hour. In this darkest hour, there's a a growing movement to remove Churchill, the only real obstacle to peace with Hitler and the hope of saving Britain from invasion. Churchill is facing the real threat of of losing his job, more importantly, his country. And amidst these threats, Winston delivers a speech to Parliament, and a part of it goes like this. He says, even the large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight on the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We will never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle. Until in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and liberation of the old. The speech was immediately seen as historic. It saved Churchill's job. It helped to kill the talk of negotiating peace with Hitler, and it rallied the British people. Their circumstances had not changed, but due to the rallying call of their leader, they now had hope and a reason to fight. We may not be on an island surrounded by a hostile invasion force bent on destroying our way of life, but Sometimes, life can feel like that. There are times for each of us when it feels like, you know, we just can't get ahead. There always seems to be something dragging us into a crisis moment. Often we want to blame the circumstances that brought us there, here, to our own personal darkest hours. We want to blame someone else for the mess that we're in and and the way that we feel. Some of us are a bit more honest with ourselves and realize that those circumstances definitely seem to be aligned against us. It's our own sin that, that brought us to this place, that brought us to this time. It's our own mistakes. Some made innocently enough, some made with clear intent, that have set the stage for what at times can feel like our darkest hour. Life isn't easy. It feels like there's always something hard going on. There's always some temptation to resist, some sin to avoid. And what can make it worse is that often those sins, I mean, those temptations, they they look really good. They look really good. They're really desirable. And and so, you know, we, we just let ourselves go a little. We loosen our boundaries. We 
We give in to that which we know we're not supposed to. We take that money on the counter that, you know, we know it doesn't belong to us, but, I mean, are they going to miss it? We visit that website and then delete the history, hoping that no one's going to notice. We tell a lie or three to make, you know, help, help others see us the way that we want to be seen, the way that we, you know, feel. In order to manipulate people and circumstances so that they reflect, you know, a little more favorably upon us. These are just a few examples of how our sin tempts us, pushes our buttons in the way that it alone knows how. And then in our failings, it paints us in a corner. It's going to be different for everyone, but you know where you struggle. You know what you've done. You know how you failed to be perfect, failed to please your parents, your friends, failed to, to please God, to keep his laws and fulfill his desires for your life perfectly. You know. And with that knowledge comes shame. With that knowledge comes the, the guilt and, and the doubt We know that we've messed up and we seem to constantly be tripping over our own bad intentions. Even as we try to follow God's commands, try to do what he's called us to do. And when we sit in that shame and that guilt, we craft, we create our own darkest hours. We ask ourselves, how can I get out of this mess? We feel trapped and surrounded Will I ever be free of the darkness? When we are in those dark times, to what do we turn? When we can so fully relate to the psalmist David as he writes in Psalm 51.3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And we can feel that and we can see that. And with it we have our shame like hanging over us. Where do we go for help? Where do we turn for relief? Some will argue that there are many ways to deal with our failings. We can drown them in the bottle or with an opiate of choice. We can focus on the failings of others to make ourselves feel a little better. You know, we can focus on the distractions that we like or that we're good at, like going to the movies or watching sports. Or maybe hobbies like painting, writing in a journal, or composing music. And some of these, I mean, they may help for a time. But none of those are going to address the true issue, the reason for our shame. They may cover it up, they may bury it for a time, but none of them addresses the true reason for our darkness. How do the followers of Jesus deal with their darkest hour? Darkest hour probably barely only scratches the surface of how Jesus' followers are feeling at the beginning of our text. And unlike Great Britain, they didn't have a charismatic leader to rally and encourage them with fine, well-spoken words. Their leader was dead. 
They had seen him betrayed. They had seen him humiliated. They had seen him crucified. They had seen him buried. And he had taken their hope with him to the grave. And all that was left was to go into hiding. To wallow in misery. There was, of course, the need to perform the last rites on the body. But with that came a finality that they struggled to embrace. And yet it needed to be done. And so a few of the women made their way to the tomb of their beloved teacher. Our text picks up this morning with Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, bringing spices that had been prepared for Jesus' body. And as they approach the tomb, they see that the stone is, is rolled away. Now, this is pretty shocking in and of itself, for the stone is, is massive, and it's, it's not easily moved. When they enter the tomb, they do not find the body of Jesus. Instead, two angels appear to them. The women are totally and understandably freaked out. And then the angels say, my favorite line in this text, they say, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you seek the living among the dead? How profound is that? The Marys and Joanna are only doing what's natural. They're only following what is expected. They know what happens when a person dies. And they know what, the needs, what needs to be done to the body to treat it respectfully, to, to keep it from stinking, to help it in its decay. They are simply doing what is always done, what is normally done, what society has dictated they do in the circumstances that have been presented to them. Why do you seek the living among the dead? When you are in your darkest hour, in an incredibly trying time, and what do you do? You do what you've always done. You do what society would have you do, and, and maybe logic would have you do. You look for help in distraction. You're looking for help in, in booze or your drug of choice. You're looking for help by numbing your senses to the pain. You're looking for help by trying to forget the pain. You, you bury your feelings or maybe eat them. You're looking for help by confiding in a friend or expressing yourself in art. And again, while some coping mechanisms can be healthy, none are going to fix the root problem. But you aren't going to find help in distraction. You're looking for the living among the dead. You're looking for help where it will not be found. You're looking for help in all the wrong places. But our text this morning, it gives us an answer for this flaw in our thinking, this mistake, this miscalculation. It gives us some advice when we slip and fall and fail and begin that spiral into darkness. And that answer is this. Remembrance. Remembrance. Why do you seek the living among the dead, the angel asked, and then continued. He is not here, but he is risen. 
Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. Remember. Remember how he told you while he was still alive and ministering in Galilee that the Son of Man, that he, Jesus, would be delivered into the hands of sinful men and that he would be crucified on the third day he would rise. Remember that? Do you remember that? Now, I'm sure when Jesus was telling all of them, you know, this back in, in Galilee, that they had no idea of the significance of what he was saying. Jesus said so many things during his ministry that didn't necessarily make sense to the disciples at the time that he said them. And we see this all over the book of John where we read how something happens and then the disciples remember back to it at a different time. They go, oh, that's what he meant when he said that thing that one time. Jesus said a bunch of stuff that just, it just sounds crazy. Especially when you didn't have the context to go with it. When you didn't have the future knowledge to look back with. And chief among those crazy things that Jesus said is that he would be crucified and that he would rise. That he would come back. From the dead. Our text this morning tells us that the women remembered. They remembered the words of their teacher, their master, their Lord, and they returned with great news to the disciples. Remembrance. Today is a day of remembrance. We celebrate Easter in, in many different fashions there are egg hunts and candy. We get together with family and enjoy a a special meal. But all of that is just the trappings of remembrance. For on this day, we remember what Jesus did for us. What we needed him to do for us because we couldn't do it ourselves. During the season of Lent, we've been remembering the call to repentance that God is continually issuing to his people. We've remembered how God is constantly calling his people back into relationship with him. We've remembered how he has a plan for our salvation, a plan for reconciliation. And this week we've spent time remembering how that plan was put into action. We've remembered how Jesus was betrayed. We've remembered the rigged jury in the sentence of death. We've remembered the beatings and the lashing. We've remembered how he is forced to carry a, a heavy wooden cross, the instrument of his death, up the hill to Golgotha, the place of the skull. Calvary. And there he was nailed to the cross, and the Son of God allowed himself to be held there. And we've remembered that that he had the power and ability to remove himself from that cursed tree and to smite any and all who would put him there. But we also remembered that we are the ones who put him there. It was our sin. Because of our sin, the sin that separated us from God, the sin that had to be atoned for, that had to be paid for, the sin that all of us have, this sin is why he had to die. For he was the only acceptable sacrifice. And it was his love that kept him on the tree, his love for you and for me. 
And we have remembered that he was forsaken by God. That on account of our sin, God turned his face from his son whom he loved. And on account of our sin, he died. And if that were the end of the story, there would be no reason for celebration. There would be no reason for eggs or candy or special meals. Now, we wouldn't be in church today. There wouldn't be churches For if things stayed where we left them on Friday with Jesus dead and in the grave, then the Christian faith would not exist. It would have no purpose. As Tim Keller once wrote, the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Everything revolves around today. What a day. What a day to cherish, a day to rejoice, a day to praise and to sing, a day to remember. A day to remember that our God is alive. He is not here, the angel said. He has risen. He has risen. He has left the grave empty and wanting. And in his rising, he displayed, he proved his power over sin and death. He has shown his ability to keep his word, to keep his promises. The weight of our sin could not keep him in the grave. He overpowered all of it. He conquered all. All of it, the darkness of our sin was no match for the light of Christ. Not that we are empowered or encouraged to sin, but that our sin would not have power over us. And so because of today, because of what we celebrate with remembrance today, we can have hope in our darkness. When we sin, when we spiral in our failures when we feel that that we are in our darkest hour we can remember the words given to us in scripture this is where we can turn this is where our hope lies it lies in an empty tomb and so we no longer need to seek the living among the dead no longer do we need to bury and hide from our shame from our sin Christ defeated both of them on the cross. No longer do we drown our embarrassment and shame with opiates, with slander, with lies and cover-ups. We can bring it all to Jesus. We can lay it all at the cross. For he is intimately aware of our failings. For he has paid for each one with his blood that he willingly shed for each of us. Whether we believe in him or not, he shed it for each of us. And he has conquered each one of our failings by rising from the dead. And when we ask for forgiveness, it is granted. That is a promise. I mean, I'll say it again. This is where our hope lies. It lies in an empty tomb. Let us remember passages like Romans 8, 31, 39, which we read This morning, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And picking up with verse 37 of chapter 8. No. In all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What wonderful words of promise for each of us. In our darkest hour, each of us longs for a hero. We long for a Winston Churchill to tell us that everything is going to be all right. We long for someone to tell us it's going to be okay. We long for someone to encourage us, to lift us up, and to help us believe that there will be better days ahead. We long for someone to forgive us, to know all that we have done, and to accept us and love us anyway. We long for a way out of our darkest hours. And in Christ, we have one. The only one. For the light of Christ expels our darkest hour. As you walk the mountaintops and the valleys, as you go through the joys and hardships of life, remember this day. Remember that Jesus defeated death, that Jesus conquered all sin. That Jesus walked the road of redemption in your place. That through his death and resurrection, He has reconciled you to the Father and that through faith in Him and only through faith in Him there is hope for the future. A hope that will not be denied. A hope that is founded on the one who keeps His promises. And when the valleys get deep and the shadows get long and the darkness seems to be around every corner, remember the words of your Savior. And remember that he will always remember you, for he has risen. Amen.